1: I'm coping with the perimenopause, and I say coping with—it's a big deal. People are going, "Oh, everyone goes through it," and it's not—it's massive. It really is. And I've—I've I've known people who've got divorced because of it. It's that you know, because they, they can't hold down a relationship. it, it its that—it's that dramatic.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I am your host, Katie Weber. Before we get started, here is a review from Jenna.Nimar, I hope I said that right, on Apple Podcasts. Jenna writes, excellent podcast. I'm so glad I found this podcast. My ADHD worsened during the pandemic, changing my life in many ways, and this podcast has been a great touchpoint for me. Listening to other women like me has been so helpful in feeling less alone, less flawed, and helped me take care of my well-being and feelings around having ADHD. Katie is a wonderful interviewer and provides an important service to this community in raising women's voices up. Aw, this really touched me, so thank you, Jenna. And thank you for taking the time to write that review. I so appreciate it because A, it lets me know I'm doing a good thing here because, you know, it's not easy putting this podcast together. And B, the more reviews I have on this podcast, the more likely other women are going to find it and relate to the stories of these amazing women and hopefully start to connect the dots and feel less alone in their own diagnosis. And finally, C, I realize the extra effort it takes to stop what you're doing and remember to actually go into an app and write a review like this because of, you know, you're ADHD. So thank you again. And if you are a listener and you haven't yet written a review, please consider adding one soon. They don't have to be essay length. In fact, just go ahead and hit the five stars because that helps too. Okay, moving on. Here we are at episode 26 in which I interview Rachel Morgan Trimmer. I reached out to Rachel after I watched her speak on the topic of ADHD in women and girls for Camp ADHD back in January. And I've included a link to that video in the show notes. I highly recommend you watch it. It's incredibly insightful and thorough, as are many of the Camp ADHD videos. And Rachel has such a lovely sense of humor, as you will see in this interview. Rachel is a neurodiversity consultant, an entrepreneur of 16 years, and self-described weirdo. She helps companies recruit, retain, and develop neurodiverse staff through a unique program of workshops and coaching. She is autistic and has ADHD and says that she has an impressive array of mental health conditions, which gives her an insight and understanding of people who are quote unquote not normal. I loved chatting with Rachel about the intersection of ADHD and autism in adult women, especially in perimenopause as well as whether or not it's necessary to get a medical diagnosis when it comes to ADHD or autism. We also talk a little bit about chronic volunteerism and the stress of motherhood and ADHD, and she gives some great tips for self-care. So you might actually want to grab a pen and paper for this episode. Enjoy. Okay, so let's start. Uh, I'd like to hear your personal story first. Um, You are also autistic, is that right? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So um, you know, when were you diagnosed with autism? When were you diagnosed with ADHD? Was it at the same time and kind of what led up to that diagnosis for you? Well, I'm actually still waiting for it. Oh, right. I'm <laughs> not an uncommon thing in the UK. Mm-hmm. I'm still, um, yes, I'm still
1: waiting for the diagnosis. I'm self-diagnosed, which is valid because obviously I work in this industry. I can spot an autistic from a mile off. Um, you know, I've done, I've done so much research. I've had the, um, I've had my self-diagnosis validated by other professionals who are not, I don't know if it's like a, you know, a legal thing or what to get the diagnosis because I've been, um, I've been identified as autistic and with ADHD by people who really know what they're talking about. So for example, my last mental health therapist who is was super highly qualified, he's not, he's not allowed to diagnose me with with things outside his particular field like um you know but he he said you know he was very straightforward he said that there was no doubt in his mind that I'm autistic and you know that was that was enough for me and then I had a coach um, an American actually an ADHD coach because um because I was I was pretty sure I did have ADHD and in the first session she was like yeah of course you have um, so yes, see, and and the the difficulties um, are, are enormous um, for an adult woman trying to get a diagnosis, especially a busy adult woman who will I wouldn't say give up at the first hurdle, but I've not got the time and the energy to keep going back and saying, you know, I don't think you're qualified to diagnose me because you've given me a form that is all to do with little boys and I'm an adult woman and I have no confidence in your ability to diagnose me and I'm not paying you 500 quid for that because I think I know more than you you know just stuff like that and and going to and from uh you know various doctors and GPs and it's it's so draining and I've got so many other things to do that I just can't be um I can't be I can't be doing with it anymore I'm on a waiting list for the autism people um I've been on that for I I don't even know two years maybe Mm. something like Mm -hmm. that so that's,
0: that's where I am with the with diagnosis. It is, it is amazing to me how many uh, women I've reached out to, to interview who have said, I'm not officially diagnosed. Is that okay? And my response is always sort of like, well, look, we are such intense researchers. We are, you know, if you, you know, deeply, deeply relate to a lot of the literature, the community the memes you know whatever you're seeing out there if you deeply relate to that that is pretty much an indication of the fact that you have this you know i i think um so and yet so many of us feel it's so important to get that official diagnosis and and it's interesting because i'm thinking about like how my own in my own personal situation uh, when I did get that diagnosis, I had all of this paperwork and I had all the t- self tests, and like I came armed with all of this information because I was terrified that the doctor was going to say no, you don't have this. And then I was sort of like, well, where's that? Where does that leave me? Um, because I felt like this, just the awareness and they and my own self diagnosis just so radically changed how I viewed myself and how I looked back at my childhood, and and I just was so terrified that I was going. To be told no, which I think is very common. I mean, I, you know, we, we, that's our whole lives is right, right there is, is not trusting ourselves. And, and I remember when the doctors was like, yes, obviously, clearly you have it. Look at you with all of this paperwork, uh, but I had, I made her say it out loud because I was so afraid I was gonna leave there and there might be some confusion or or some new, you know, I might've like misread the nuance or something. Like I made her actually say you have ADHD out loud because so there was no doubt in my mind when I left there that I had misread the conversation somehow because we live with that, such that overwhelming feeling of of what did I do wrong here? <laughs> Uh, or this didn't turn out how I thought it was going to, or all of that. Um, So I sort of feel like a self-diagnosis is the biggest difference in, in the journey, you know, like that's, that is really um, that sets the ball rolling. It's, it's the first domino, whatever you want to call it. Um, And so it, it, I love hearing somebody like you who is a professional (laughs) who does this for a living uh, who, who validates that sense that like, you know, a doctor's diagnosis isn't really the end-all be-all. Sure, if you need medication, then you, you need a, a diagnosis. But beyond that, I think so much of that work is internal.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you. And I'd like to pick up on something that, that you said um, about you were afraid of being told no. And we are so used to being told no, especially women with ADHD. We're told no. We're, we're invalidated all the time. I've been told you can't have ADHD. You haven't got ADHD, and I've been told, you know, it's not just with ADHD. It's so many other things that we we say or believe or, or even feel that are invalidated by other people. And I think part of it for for people like us, for grown-up women, is that you just you've had enough of that. You just don't want any more. So it's not something that you might always actively pursue as strongly as you might pursue something else for example, you might pursue a diagnosis for your child more easily because it's not, um, it's not so much about you anymore. And also because you've got more strength to do it for your kid. I think sometimes we don't do enough for ourselves. We don't advocate enough for ourselves. We don't value ourselves enough to fill in the forms and go to the doctor and say, yes, I need this. Yes, I am correct about this. Yes, I have done my research. We shouldn't even need to do that. We should just be able to turn up. But we, mm-hmm. we feel like we have to bring all the paperwork, like you said, and, and prove that we know what we're talking about and that we're not wasting anybody's time. And I think for, for women, we, we're very much ingrained that, that we shouldn't be um, doing all these. And and it really takes, I think, a lot of self-talk to value ourselves enough to take those steps to get what we're entitled to. And I think that that word entitled is something that sits very ill with us. it's certainly with me, I don't feel like I'm I want to stride in somewhere and go, I am entitled to this, I am entitled to a diagnosis, even though I am. But it doesn't feel comfortable saying that. And I think that's more to do with the the way society treats women and gives us an expectation to behave. And I think some of that is compounded by having ADHD. Oh my goodness.
0: Yes. And I think you you know The word value, uh, I think, is so loaded as in terms of how women view that. Like you said, it comes with a sense of entitlement, which it really shouldn't. Um, Or, or there's nothing. You know, we shouldn't have a negative uh, connotation to entitlement. I mean, men certainly don't. I mean, my my husband and I have conversations where he will fully acknowledge, like, the difference. You know, what led to our different opinions. Where he said, you know, I grew up never doubting my own opinion because I was a man I never had to uh, I always belonged in the room you know and and so we sort of will see how that frames so many of our different approaches to conversation and I think you're right it is such a specific specifically female symptom I guess of ADHD and neuro neurodiver- neurodivergence I think at all, in in all its forms uh, I wanted to hear from you what were some things in your past looking back at your own childhood where you say, Oh, the signs, the signs were always there?
1: Well, there were a lot of them. Like in your report cards, I had similar things. I had must try harder, not reaching your potential, and keep saying, I don't understand why you can't do it. Um but tuning out was a big one because I, I realized. I realized when I, you know, when I self-diagnosed with ADHD, how extreme it is because I was so confused because the teacher would say, why didn't you listen? And and I'd look around me and everyone else had done the thing correctly and I'd done it wrong. And I couldn't understand because they didn't tell us how to do it. And of course they had. And I tuned out to the extent that I didn't realize that I tuned out. And I still don't realize that I, I do that. I still do it. And and I I miss um, I miss big chunks of things. So there was yeah there was a lot of confusion that that classic tuning out the the inattention being bored a lot of the time. I thought everybody was bored at school, but my my boredom was extreme. Going to um, great lengths to avoid things that I thought were boring. Mm-hmm. I remember one homework assignment. I had to write an essay on the life cycle of the large blue butterfly. And I actually quite like butterflies, but this came out of nowhere. If we talked about different kinds of butterflies or why life cycles important, like caterpillars are fun, right? Blue butterflies, big ones are exciting. And yet there was no context, no one making it exciting, no pictures of giant butterflies, no opportunity to draw a butterfly and color it in with your blue crayons. Just write this essay on the life cycle of the large blue butterfly. And I remember sitting, thinking, looking at the blank page with the heading at the top, thinking, why have I got to do this? Why am I doing it? And then I, I, I put it off and I, I think I got detention for not doing it just because I just couldn't sit down. Like I, I had the capability to do it, but I just I just couldn't because it was so dull. And I can't I, talking about it now. I cannot believe they made something so interesting so dull somebody who likes color and nature and the whole idea of of transformation you know and they just sort of sucked all the sucked all the joy and the color out of it I didn't even have any color on my page it was a white page with it must have been blue pen we had to use a blue pen at school but that was the only blue on it no blue butterfly
0: I had a teacher in the sixth grade who, oh, she, oh, she never gave me an A on anything and it drove me crazy. And that we will always have these large projects where I would do things that I thought were interesting and I would hand them in. And she always said, you didn't do enough work. You know, you didn't do enough to explain what you were doing. And it was very frustrating for me. And so I remember my very last project of the year in sixth grade, I did it on Hawaii. And I literally opened up the Encyclopedia Britannica and I just copied everything word for word from the encyclopedia. <laughs> and I just handed in like a stack of what was the most boring plagiarized project uh I'd ever created and I got an A plus on it and it just reminded me <laughs> your story reminded me of it because I just felt like I had proven this point to nobody but myself uh of sort of what her expectations were the fact that I could do it you know and I think that's something else that we we talk about a lot with women with ADHD Is like well I, I feel like I can do it <laughs> um but what's the point
1: there was another example of um when, you know, when you, when you asked me previously about, um, you know, what are some signs from when you were younger that you had ADHD? And I remember being on, um, on the tube train in London, what you call the subway, you know, the underground train. And they had this project called Poems, Poems on the Underground. And the, I read one, which I think was five verses. And I really, really liked it, but I didn't have pen pencil on me to write it down. And it was in the days before everybody had a, a camera phone. So I memorised it. It was a reasonably long tube journey. So I just read it over and over until I memorised it. And I knew that was like a little bit unusual. But I didn't know it was a symptom of ADHD. I didn't know about hyperfocus. And in fact, when I went to the first person, the first medical professional I spoke to, who was an old white man with glasses, who was a psychiatrist, who did not understand, I was going to say me i don't think he understood women or adhd or anything about me and didn't even try and when i told him about you know i said i think i've got adhd he said well if i gave you this list of things would you be able to remember it and i was like well of course i can i can remember anything that's how i got through my exams i got through my exams because um despite having having adhd and uh, being um you know bored out of my head a lot of the time i could just memorize massive chunks of shakespeare remember what i was supposed to say and just put it in the essay. And they were so impressed that I could remember all this stuff. I mean, I was pretty good at English anyway, but they were so impressed that, you know, I used to, I used to pass my exams fairly easily. And and like most people with ADHD, that last minute cramming really, really works for me, you know, doing well under pressure and so on. But this psychiatrist, he said, um, he said, well, if you can remember this list of things I, I give you, that means you haven't got ADHD. So he was discounting the fact I had ADHD because I had one of the significant symptoms, which neither of us knew at the time.
0: Yeah, that, that explains why I think so many people in the theater have ADHD. I certainly loved acting growing up. And that was always one of these things, because now I feel like as I get older, my memory just gets worse and worse and worse, especially my short term uh, function. Yeah, what's the term? Um, Working memory yes, working memory. Thank you. And, uh, couldn't remember the term. What do you know? Uh, so, uh, but I used to be able to memorize entire parts uh, when I was younger and, and it always felt like there was like a separate section of my brain that I could compartmentalize that. And then it would just come out in, in, it was, it was almost a sense of automation, you know, and I think we also, we love automation and we, and we are very fascinated by it. And I think a lot of times like structure and, and ways in which we structure our lives are, are founded on, on this sort of unconscious automation that allows us to do things. Right. And, and so I think that like memorizing it's, I'm gesturing like to the back of my brain, like there's like a part where we store it. Um, and, but then I think there's also times where a five line poem, you have, everything else has to fall, fall away in order for you to remember that. And you have to keep remembering it and keep focusing on that. And everything else is on hold until you can get to the piece of paper and write it down. (laughs) So I'm I'm curious, what are some of the overlaps in women with ADHD and autism? Because I feel like they're, I mean, it's such an interesting spectrum and so many different overlaps. Um, what are some things that are sort of more specific to autism in, in women?
1: Well, I get, you know, I get asked about having ADHD and autism quite a lot. And it's always an interesting question, but it's actually very hard to answer because, I've never lived without either of them.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: And and in some ways you think they'd offset each other enough to be normal, but they really don't. And it's really hard to untangle which bit is the autism and and which bit is the ADHD. And I think um, one example I sometimes use is the fact that, obviously, um, autistic people like to organise things and have everything quite neat and tidy and... You know, they they like a, a routine and things. And I think that really helps people with ADHD, but we struggle to get there. So, for example, and I know with, with ADHD, um one tends to have areas of their lives that are very organised and structured because we need that, otherwise everything falls apart. And then, you know, we have the other end of the spectrum where everything's a total mess. And I, I see that very much in, in my own life. So I have... um you know, if you asked me to get a recipe for waffles right now, I could go down to the kitchen and I could find three recipe books, which I know have waffle recipes in and find those for you and tell you which one is my favourite and which one I've tried and wasn't so keen on. And what are the different variations and so on. So that's like an autistic thing, that level of organisation and knowing where things are and being like totally involved in in what that is. Um But if you ask me to um, find some paperwork, which is not something that interests me, then that's where the ADHD very much comes in. So if you said, can you find this document from this month of this year, I would would say yes, and then I wouldn't do it. (laughs) because I you know we do that don't we we sort of pretend we're like yeah yeah I'll do that for you because we like to people please that's a, I think mm. people find that very much in women with both ADHD and autism we do like to people please okay so yeah that's no problem and then you think well I can't do that and I don't want to do it and it's going to take too long and I don't know where it is because I haven't organized all the things and then you know and then it's not something that happens so I think um I think in some ways they, they do offset each other but they do um I find the some of the ADHD habits uh, kind of annoying for an autistic person because I like the place to be tidy, but I don't like tidying, <laughs> which is obviously and it's not a problem that you can sort of get around because you you can try and live with the tidiness. Sorry, with the mess, which is not comfy for an autistic person because we it's more than just oh I don't like this mess. It feels it feels kind of it feels almost physically
0: uncomfortable. Yes, I relate to this very deeply right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then with the ADHD, you're like, well, I don't want to tidy. That's boring. I want to go and look at my waffle recipes. I want Interesting. to go butterfly. Tidying's boring. I don't. Yeah. Care. So, um there is there is quite a lot of conflict there and I but I think um when I need to sort of get some structure in my life so I can get the things done. I think the the autistic side where um where I'm capable of making a schedule and a structure and a framework and a plan, and all the things that us women with a d h d need to sort of hang everything else on is like a rack isn't it a structure a framework that we can hang all the bits of our lives on so we know where things are and when things are supposed to happen and the autistic part of me actually enjoys doing that enjoys making that structure. And then that's easier to keep the ADHD sort of, I wouldn't say under control because it's not something that you control really, but um, in a place where I can do the things that I want to do. And and I say this like it's a thing that works all the time and my life is just, uh, is just calm and smooth and tidy and everything's fine. It's not, it's always, um, I think struggle or battle are, are two strong words for, for the way I live my life but it's always it's always a challenge it's not like the sort of people who don't have ADHD where they can go and do a thing and it's not a a problem it's always it's always something that is more difficult for me than for a normal person.
0: You just reminded me when you were talking about in the camp ADHD video when you talked about volunteerism (laughs) (laughs) I had, you know, an experience with my children's elementary school where I had gone to a PTA meeting, the very first PTA meeting I ever showed up to. I don't know why I even went in the first place. Usually, I mean, my youngest was a baby at the time, so I don't know how I got out of it. Maybe I was looking to be around adults. I don't know. But I went to this PTA meeting and they were looking for somebody to design a new logo. And I am a graphic designer and was like, no, nah, I can do that in my sleep. Sure, I'll do it. I volunteered. I did it uh, that night and and sent it off to them um, because it was interesting <laughs> and sent it off to them. And then in their minds, I was this highly competent person. And so they asked me to then join the PTA. And I was sort of like, um, okay, how bad can it be? And that started me on this like five-year m- Train of misery, of getting more and more resp- volunteer responsibilities dumped on me, not being able to say no. I spent the last two years as the president of the PTA, which I think is so hilarious because I feel like, you know, I'm such this hot mess, but I also at the same time feel like a very highly competent person <laughs> and, and, you know, so really struggled with how It took over my life. I felt like a terrible mother. And I was like, the irony is not lost on me that as I am now this in this intense volunteer position, my entire like home life and family life as the as a parent has fallen apart because I had to do all of these things. And so anyway, I just I didn't even think about volunteerism. And that people-pleasing aspect, and the inability to say no, and all of that that I've struggled with, as also sort of part and parcel with with ADHD, uh, and um, and and that and that simultaneous juxtaposition of of being highly competent, <laughs> and yet at the same time, I think like you you had said before, like you know how. Um, Needing to sort of focus on something, then um, all of the structures fall apart. You know, and and this is something I talk about a lot with with women who, like me, were diagnosed within the last year. I call us like lockdown diagnoses or pandemic diagnoses, whatever you want to call it. But really, women, mothers, who as soon as we everybody was home and and remote learning happened, and suddenly our house was a disaster, and um, you know, everything that we had had in these tidy structures and time containers was just blown to bits and, and we imploded and um, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to me because that makes, you know, I, I, I see now why I took the, why I took something that had been suggested to me for years and I never really sort of related to, and suddenly I felt like I uh, really needed to like get help and figure out because I was struggling so much. Um, but I, I'm curious as to what you think about structure versus hormones. Because I, while I also sort of felt like structure is something that is essential and I think it's very important to us, um, when you look back at like times in our lives when women tend to be diagnosed, puberty, right? Um, motherhood. And and perimenopause, so these are all times where we are having hormonal surges, hormonal dump. You know, like we're having these incredibly, um, uh, you know, uh, a lot of estrogen production. Production, and I know there's some so much fascinating research out there about estrogen and ADHD, but these are also times when we went from a highly structured environment to a structure or an environment that required us to create our own structure. And then that we sort of implode. So you take like middle school, but more, you know, and then again, babies. I mean, motherhood, it's, a, it's a disaster. Uh, and I think so many of us struggle and, and struggled more than we felt like we should have, you know, and, and also struggled in silence because motherhood is supposed to be something that you're really happy about and you, and something you're supposed to love this bundle of joy every moment. And you're like, I do love this bundle of joy, but I also am really depressed. And so it's when we, we get diagnosed with postpartum depression and anxiety instead um, so I'm curious what you think, um, uh, of, you know, is, is it structure, is it hormones or is it just a big fat jumble of everything?
1: I think it's, um,
0: I think it's really hard
1: to sort of untangle all that because, um, you know, the, we know that hormonal changes make ADHD worse. The impact of um, estrogen and progesterone on the brain, we know they affect dopamine and serotonin, um, but untangling that from everything else that's going on, because puberty is hard even if, you know, even if you're not a woman with ADHD, and and so is perimenopause. I mean, the, the hormone fluctuations can be quite extreme. And I, it was interesting what you were saying about, you know, the, the structure and stuff, because um, Dr. Ellen Littman, who I quoted in my talk, she said something very interesting about women with ADHD, especially, you know, when you become a parent, which was... Um, that you you don't expect a support system and you haven't got a support system you are the support system but we we don't you know with ADHD we struggle enough to create our own support system we don't ask for it for anyone else because you know as women we're we're taught not to ask for things like we've discussed and then um and then we're expected to create the support system for, for everybody else. And, and that quite often extends beyond our family. For you, it extended to the PTA. You know, it can extend to our partner and our friends and, and all sorts of people, you know. And that's OK as far as it goes. But uh, I think far too many women neglect themselves um, at the expense of that, at the expense of trying to do do all the things and, and be you know, trying to be good at, you know, our ADHD makes us really, really good at some things and we, tr- we try and extrapolate that to the rest of our lives, but we just, we can't do it. No. I think one interesting thing he said was about um, perimenopause and that I'm experiencing that at the moment and I have noticed that some of the the impact is, is extreme and some of the things are really weird, like sometimes my muscles hurt, like stuff like that um the the mood the mood changes I would say swings but it's not I just think that trivializes it your mood is everything isn't it, it mm-hmm. changes your whole day your whole week and so the the mood changes are um a quite extreme in my case but I think for people my age and in my situation we need to look at the other thing that's going on. So I'm coping with the perimenopause and I say coping with, it's a big deal. People are going, oh, everyone goes through it and it's not, it's massive. It really is. And I've, I've known people who've got divorced because of it. It's that, you know, because they, they can't hold down a relationship. It, it, it's, that, it's that dramatic. But if we look at other things, people, um, people my age and um, having their kids later now, in some situations, so I had my I had my second kid when I was forty, so I've got little kids still, and I'm forty six. But also, people in their forties, and I see this a lot in my friend group who, you know, are a similar age to me. Our parents are starting to get old, and to need more care. So, um, in any friendship group, in in my age group, you've got, um, you know, someone's mum's ill, or someone's dad has had a fall, or uh, you've got to take them for their blood, because and you start helping out more, don't you? you? You do the driving, you might mow their lawn, you might you might take them a dinner. So um the sandwich generation, when you've got parents to look after, or it might be other elderly relatives, you might have an aunt or or whoever. You've got the the older folk to look after, and you've got your little kids, and you're having a perimenopause, and you've got ADHD, and with all of that, you've got the rest of your life. You've got your work, you've got Trying to take care of yourself, you could go for a run. But when are you going to find time for going for a run? So your self care is slipping. You've got to make dinner. You've got to phone the man about the washing machine because it's broken. And again, all these things seem little. Some, you know, oh, you're having a mood swing. You've got to phone a man. But when you put them all together, it's it's enormous. And it's like, well, that's only going to people say to me that will only take five minutes. One, I haven't got five minutes because i'm doing something else and two if you give if you give me 20 things that take five minutes that's an hour i can't do it in an hour because i have to task switch that's an enormous cognitive load because i've got to remember to phone the man and to make the dinner and to buy the stuff for dinner and to remember that one of my kids doesn't eat this thing so i have to buy a different thing it's a huge cognitive load with adhd we can we can take a lot but not everything and i like the words of um brene brown who um who you're probably familiar with who writes a lot about um you know accepting your imperfections and and things like that and one of the the things she said was life is made up of little things which I think is a very powerful statement and and she's not talking about the you know the crappy stuff or the boring stuff she's talking about everything so if you think back to your report cards for example that's a, a little thing a sentence written in a report card and yet you know, it's it means a great deal to you. And when we're thinking about the sorts of things we're we're doing for our kids, they might not remember, um, a, you know, some of the big stuff that we did. You know, we I say to my kids, "Hey, remember that time we went abroad on this really lovely holiday?" And they're like, "Oh yeah," they don't really remember, but they remember the time we went round the corner and threw snowballs at each other. Little things. Yeah. And so that's what our life is made up as. And I started this, th- this thread so long ago, I've, I've just dropped it now. And I don't even know where I was going with that. But I think I've, <laughs> I think I was just trying to create a sense of how much there is going on for people like me.
0: Raise your hand if you're really good with your diet for a few days or weeks but you always end up sabotaging your own efforts. Or you fear having certain foods in the house because you feel like you lack the self-control to avoid them when they're there. Or you feel like everyone but you has this whole eating and exercise thing figured out and you just wanna scream, what is wrong with me? Well, guess what? You are not alone. In my book, Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom, I share with you my own history with yo-yo dieting and binge eating from my very first diet at the age of 14 to the nearly 30 years I spent on a merry-go-round of weight loss and weight regain. I also share with you the six essential steps that helped me to finally break free from diet culture and rediscover my health and my self-worth. If you are ready to break free from dieting and binge eating cycle for good, and heal your relationship with food and your body, head to worthitwithkatie.com to get your copy of my worth it book today. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I really appreciated in your video, when you talked about the list, you know, the list of things to do and how, um, you know, the the list for the child versus the list list for the bum. And I, you really touched on something that I don't think we talk about it enough which is how asking for help is actually very complicated <laughs> you know? and so like you you know the spilling of the cereal and how you had to clean up the cereal and you use that example of like I suppose I could have the children clean up the cereal but it, it's not that it's not that easy it comes with a lot of other factors that we then add to the mental exhaustion uh, and I think about like my husband who is always offering to do the laundry uh, and I'm I i can not allow him to because he does a shit job <laughs> and he doesn't he doesn't fold properly and he doesn't even like turn clothes back the way they're supposed to go or he doesn't match, saw, you know, he does all of these things that I then have to go back and redo that it will take me just as long and give me so much more emotional baggage to allow that help. And, and I suppose there's then the other side of me that's like, well, you need to just get over those things. And sometimes you do. I mean, like I've, I allowed myself to um, bring in before, before COVID, we had a housekeeper. And that was something that was an an incredible burden off of me or off, you know, incredible load off of me. But it also came with a lot of difficult baggage in terms of just like feeling guilty that I had to do this, you know, that I think the simple act of asking for help is really, really complicated for us and comes with so many other factors. And so just asking for help can feel, um, like you had said earlier, even just with the, with the, going to the doctor, like it's just taking steps can feel like even though it's one step, it feels like a marathon in your brain because you see the hundred steps ahead of you. And, and that alone is just so exhausting.
1: I think it's, I heard it described as being um, the project manager and the person who does the work. So in a normal job, you have the project manager who tells everyone what to do because they're competent. They do it. But if you're the mum you are the project manager and you are the person doing the work. So you have to tell the kids to get their coats on, which is a project manager's job, but then one of them can't zip it up. So you have to do that as well. Or you tell them to sweep up the cereal and you have to tell them three times because your workforce is not highly trained. (laughs) And they're also not highly skilled. So they sweep up the cereal, but they miss a bit. So you have to do that as well. So all the time you're project managing and doing the actual work and that's not really a normal way to work in a workplace certainly you don't do all the things in a workplace you have your job and you stick to your job and someone else sweeps the stuff up and someone else puts their coat on
0: <laughs> um and then I'm also curious what what your take is on the term comorbidity, especially when we talk about depression and anxiety, because I have, I sort, I personally feel like there are comorbidities that make sense to me, like dyspraxia, or, um, um, you know, uh, I can't think of something else, right? Now. But, you know, things that sort of all fall together in this neurodivergent spectrum, and they all sort of people have sort of pick and choose uh, things that um, might relate to them. On this spectrum, but then there's comorbidities like depression and anxiety, which we we throw that term around a lot. I personally feel like they are symptoms of an, of an, not having an, a diagnosis, um, and I'm curious, sort of, how you feel about because you just sort of talk about depression and anxiety, and especially in women, uh, do do you think they they coexist with ADHD, or do you feel like they are uh, the result of being ADHD in a neurotypical society? Or again, is it just too hard to untangle? <laughs>
1: I think it's a good question. And I think you're right. It is hard to untangle. And I think there are going to be people who have ADHD who had, um, you know, who didn't have the other risk factors for depression and anxiety who might be depressed just because of the ADHD so when I'm talking about risk factors I'm I'm talking about um, you know early trauma or um, childhood abuse or neglect or um, difficulties at school being excluded things like that or they might have something else if they're also dyslexic um, their time at school was was likely to be very difficult being if they're autistic being excluded by peers is quite common but I think it's it's probably too hard to untangle. I mean, we do know that the rates of depression and anxiety are higher across all neurodivergent people. Um, com- when you compare to the, the rest of the population, there is more of it there. And I think, um, I think it is very difficult because you can't, it's something that's so hard to untangle. For example, we know that people with ADHD receive significantly more negative messages through their childhood than normal people and just you know absorbing that and dealing with that and thinking that that that's normal which I think is the the biggest problem um is is obviously going to lead to some some mental health issues and even those people those neurodivergent people who've um you know they've either not developed mental health issues because they're quite resilient or because um or they've they've had them and then they've um They've had some therapy and they've learned to deal with them. Even with those people, there—I did not think I've ever met a neurodiverse person who hasn't at least got baggage. So it might not be a mental illness, but there's stuff going on. They're gonna. There might be something that sort of sets them off. It might be a It might be looking at your report card, for example, and and just you know feeling sad or feeling angry, or it might be a the way somebody talks to you or makes a joke. Say, oh, you're so lazy. And for a normal person, they might laugh it off. And for someone with ADHD, they're gonna properly kick off at that. Even if they're not mentally ill, they are gonna have a big issue with the way you said that. They're gonna ruminate on it, they're gonna, they're gonna get angry or they're gonna get upset, possibly both. If somebody said that to me, I would um I would threaten never to speak to them again or something like that. You know, our emotional regulation is is very poor. And for context as well, um, you know, when I'm talking about mental illness i i come from that from a first person perspective because i suffered from depression for 38 years um i also had anxiety but because i didn't know i was anxious i don't know how long i had generalized anxiety disorder and along with that i had um i had some other mental illnesses which were basically um those things come out of the, the poor coping strategies for dealing with the depression and the anxiety. So um, anytime you're um you're avoiding things, you're getting into situations where you're extremely avoidant of things like social interaction, or you might even develop a phobia as a reaction. There's things like OCD, which is an effort to exert control because you can't control other things that are going on around you. Addiction, of course, is very common with people with ADHD because of it's partly our poor impulse control. But also the fact that people are shoveling a load of crap on us all day, every day, telling us that we're useless and we're not trying hard enough and we don't understand and we're confused and everything. So we're going to start drinking or, you know, shopping online or gaming to extremes because that makes us feel better. And that's how we cope. And then before we know we've got an addiction. So, yeah, we, we see an awful lot of that. And I think it's... Um, I think the saddest thing is that none of that has
0: to happen, does it? Yeah, I feel like that's what I'm st- definitely still unraveling, all of that, the connections with, yeah, addiction. And, and you know, looking back at the sort of various coping strategies, I intuitively came upon some of them healthy, uh, uh, most of them not. <laughs> and, and But actually, but always being able to now recognize that whatever I did, it was Rooted in self-care because it really was about me trying to protect myself, trying to take care of myself in in whatever way I had with whatever resources were available to me. And so I sort of feel like with in hindsight, I can at least appreciate that, you know, that so many of our coping strategies are are rooted in self-care. Uh, I I wanted to mention, because we we talked about it so much, I just wanted to give the name that you had given to it also in the Camp ADHD video, which was chronic piece of shit syndrome. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure I repeated it because I feel like that. I mean, I'm sure everybody watching the video was like,
1: oh, (laughs) like
0: yes. Um, And, and I know certainly my therapist felt that way about me. I mean, she, I I remember her getting so frustrated with me because she was like, how is this incredibly intelligent, capable woman who, you know, wrote a book and, and does productive things. Uh, how can you feel so poorly about yourself? And that was one thing she would come back to. And I think that was really what tipped her off that, that, um, I had ADHD in the, in the first place. Um, and, so you talk about you know when we talk about what can we do, um, and in sort of a more proactive element, um, I wanted to ask you about B six vitamin B six. But first, I you know another thing on that list was value yourself, and coming back to that word value, and and how important self talk is in this journey, and how important it is to uh, be able to reframe so many of the things we've done in our lives as as self-care, <laughs> and I think being that ability to do that has helped me immensely in terms of my self-esteem. The most important outcome of my own diagnosis has been how I talk to myself and how I view myself and how much, is it? Is there a way, is there like a hack that you could <laughs> to get somebody to quickly value themselves? Or, I, 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 you know, it's sort of on this list of like, how can we do that? Or is it just something that comes naturally as you make these connections? in your own personal journey
1: well I think um I think for some people they need therapy to get to that place I certainly did that that um chronic piece of shit syndrome which by the way I nicked off somebody off twitter I didn't come up with that myself um that's so ingrained that you don't even realize you're doing it and I think if if some of this stuff is starting to resonate with people and and they use the word should a lot I hear that Sometimes with my coaching clients, I should do this, I should be better. If you're saying that a lot to yourself, then I think it's an indication that maybe some therapy would help you learn to value yourself and what you do. In terms of diagnosis, self-diagnosis, or um I was gonna say a real one. <laughs> Medical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just don't like this. Yeah. Any sort of diagnosis, whether that's from yourself or somebody else i believe will help like it has with you help you understand that these things are not your fault Mm,
0: mm -hmm.
1: and i think that can be very very valuable and in terms of a quick hack because obviously diagnosis takes a long time getting to therapy finding the right therapist can take a long time it is worth it i did get um i did I recovered from my 38 years of depression. I should point that out because I had therapy. I had the right therapist. So it's something that's achievable, not for everybody perhaps, but it is something that should definitely be explored because if there's a possibility that you could get better or at least learn to cope with your mental illness or mental illnesses, it should definitely be something that should be explored because people deserve that. They deserve to feel better and they find it so hard to believe. And I think trying to convince them of that can be incredibly hard. And one, one hack that I've I've used and, and I've had used on me is when we're doing all this talking to ourselves, all this, you should be better, your house should be tidier, you should be feeding the kids better food, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. I sometimes say, um, well, would you talk to your friend like that? Would you talk to your best friend like that, the way you talk to yourself? Say, no, of course not. I wouldn't go up to my friend and say you're a piece of shit and you're crap at everything and you and you say well why why are you talking to yourself like that and I think stopping and and pausing and using that um, asking that question can be quite valuable to people because um, you know I've done an awful lot of negative self-talk and when I actually stop and say well would I speak to I, I picture my my friends and think would I to this person or that person or people who were my clients as well when my clients say i did this thing even if it was quite bad and i'm like well it's not really that bad I'd, i'd probably do the same thing and you know it's not it's never quite as bad as you think it is and you're not you're not the only one who's you know not cleaned up a thing or not phoned someone when you said you would or been late or forgotten the birthday all of this stuff, everyone else with ADHD is doing exactly the same. And it's not our fault and it's not your fault. And you would never, you know, they'd never come up to me and say, well, I hope they wouldn't say this is all your fault and you should be doing better. You know, they, they wouldn't talk to me like that. So I, I really try and convince people that that's not a good way of of talking to yourself. And it's not, you know, even if you don't care about yourself, maybe you care enough about other people to take care of yourself to have that positive effect extend out to other people because um you know while you're while you're talking to yourself like this and being down on yourself and all of that you're not you're not being what you want to be to other people you're not necessarily being the, the good friend that you want which isn't the one who remembers to phone and or remembers people's birthdays it's the one who suddenly remembers that their friend likes what we we're talking about earlier waffles and they see a book about waffles and they buy their friend a book about waffles because that's what the sort of thing that people with ADHD do and you know that the more you look after yourself the more you've got the capacity to be that sort of friend or to be that that wife or partner or mother or child or colleague or whoever it is so you know if you don't care about yourself enough and i can understand that i I would hope that people would address that but for now if you can't do anything else maybe you could be kinder
0: to yourself for the sake of the people around you well that's lovely that's such an adhd question isn't it what's the fastest easiest way to get (laughs) (laughs) self-worth yeah it is it's a good question too (laughs) Uh, no, those were all lovely. And and um, so that's a great segue into talking about your coaching. You coach one-on-one? Yes,
1: I do. I do. Um, I have a, a few that I do privately and I do it uh, through workplace um, services as well. So that's when the company hires us to do training on neurodiversity, all aspects of neurodiversity. And then um, they can also pay for coaching sessions for their individual staff if they need it. So you might find, for example, a dyslexic person who needs some help with um, organisation or you might find somebody with ADHD needs some help with with structure and and planning or you might find somebody who is autistic who needs some help putting in the reasonable adaptations in the workplace to enable them to do their best work. And I think what's important to emphasise here, it's not just about dealing with all the stuff you're crap at, which is for too long, it's been the narrative, but it's also about making sure you can do your best work.
0: Which makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I find your job fascinating and I, I know we're running out of time, but I've, I'm like, <laughs> there's so I could talk your face off for hours because I, I, I was like, oh, I haven't even gotten to your amazing, fascinating job, which is that workplaces actually hire you to help them become more efficient through recognizing neurodiversity within the workplace. Right. I mean really it's self it's self-interest that would hire you because you would think that if you hired somebody to like you said, tutor almost for lack of a better word somebody in the workplace, they would become more productive uh, and it's such an it's such a mindset that does not exist in America at all uh, so, um but it's such it's fascinating. Can you tell me a bit more about your your um neurodivergent or a neurodiversity consultancy with workplace. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Well, um, we we do quite a bit of training. So we have various um, various workshops and training modules where we, we talk about you know exactly what neurodiversity is because most people don't know anything about it, which is good. It makes my job easier actually. Um, and we, we can train them uh, on all all aspects. You know what it's like to be autistic, what it's like to have ADHD, and then how to communicate. Um, with with um various different kinds of people and and when it comes to the benefits you know we we talk about the fact that hiring people with um with these conditions is actually um the, the net benefit if if all you care about is money, you're still quids in because um you know the the costs associated with hiring neurodiverse people are small then normally some a lot of the time there aren't any costs. It's just doing things a little bit differently, you know, not being weird or, you know, using the phone instead of an email, so little things like that. Um, and then, of course, it's it's not just you get a productive person in because there's lots and lots of studies about how productive um, neurodivergent people are in lots of different ways if we if we have the right conditions which you know as as you know you know ADHD people work very very quickly a lot of the time dyslexic people great problem solving um, autistic people um very good attention to detail very productive and so on so when you have when you hire a neurodivergent person you're not just getting their level of productivity but you're also having those benefits extend out towards the workplace. So when you're being inclusive, you're finding that everyone else in the workplace is working better as well because the collaboration is better. The whole inclusive vibe—you know—that you're not excluding um, people—leads to more innovation, more productivity, more creativity. And um, there's—I'm—I'm not going to cite all the studies now because I (laughs) don't—you know—I don't know how many autistics. Autistics love a bit of a a bit of science. You know, you can look this stuff up on online there are a ton but there's lots of different studies on this and they all agree that it's a a net a net benefit we are more productive and that you know if all you you care about is the money then you've got that covered but we find as well a lot of people are, are coming to us not just because they want to improve their bottom line but because they want because being inclusive is the right thing to do and it's actually something they care about and with a lot of our clients they talk to us about it and then they go or my son's autistic or my nephew is dyslexic or I'm married to somebody with ADHD. So they want to learn about it for themselves as well, which I think is really
0: lovely. Um, another question that I asked my guests, which is, you know, the, the term ADHD is so problematic for so many, especially women with the H in ADHD. So many of us do not relate to that uh, at first glance. At, um, and if you could rename it to something else, what would you call it? I
1: really like this question. And I had to think about it um I agree with you the the whole sort of deficit disorder thing is um it just doesn't sit well with with us because it's it's a difference, not a disorder, but also I don't think we should diminish the challenges because we've talked a lot today about all the difficulties that come with a d h d and I don't want it to have you know a name like the super happy fun rainbow syndrome when <laughs> when that's not the reality. <laughs> Right, the people. Yeah. So, um, I quite like the expression "chaotic good." Have you heard of that? When things are chaotic, but they turn out all right. We think of chaos as being a bad thing, but chaotic things can be good as well. You know, where people don't always follow the rules about stuff. Like, um, you know, if they if they kind of bent the rules to get some food from a restaurant to feed the homeless, that would be an example of chaotic good. So yeah. I quite like um chaos condition, I quite liked. And I quite like this, the idea that with ADHD, everything is like extreme, isn't it? So the good stuff and the bad stuff. So I quite liked excess everything existence which you could shorten to triple e which i think sounds quite ooh, <laughs> and cool it's very important
0: triple e i like that yeah, yeah.
1: Triple E, I quite like. and the other the other thing i was thinking about um was the fact that we're multifaceted we've got lots of different things like like a gemstone so i didn't come up with a name for that
0: well gemstones are also created after a lot of pressure is put onto the soil too which i like that yeah <laughs>
1: Yes, and I, I like the idea of us having lots of different sides and sparkling. That's why my, my Twitter name is Sparkle Class. That's partly the reason. So I was thinking something like Gemstone Syndrome might be quite good.
0: Um, I love that. I appreciate your insight so much. and It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting
1: me. It's been really nice. I I always like talking to, um, to people with, with ADHD and autistic people just because I find the the conversation is a lot easier i don't have to struggle i i I don't have to rush my words i can talk more slowly because i'm not afraid of somebody interrupting me which is ironic because adhd people are known for interrupting and yet when you get two in a room they stop doing it it's it's weird but yeah i've really enjoyed this interview
0: there you have it thank you for listening and i really hope you enjoyed this episode of the women and adhd podcast Also, as you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review over on my website, womenandadhd.com, or on Apple Podcasts, or Audible, or whatever other platform you're using. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom. Done. Done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. Make sure to tag me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at womenandadhd. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast.com at gmail.com. If you'd like to know more about me, head over to worthitwithkatie.com. That's where I help other women with ADHD break free from the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle for good. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.